Hi everyone, welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ podcast. My name is Phil Bruns. Thank you so much for taking time from your day to be with us. Today we continue our series entitled For Him, where we are looking at our characters and different parts and pieces of our lives that we can become better people, better servants uh, for Him. And we'll take another look at that first century church in Ephesus to help us. Our lesson today is entitled, In Humility Brought Together for Him. In Humility Brought Together for Him. You know, just like us today, the followers of Jesus back in the first century, uh, there was a retraining of the mind that needed to happen when they chose to make Jesus their Lord. There was uh, some, some decisions that they had to make, some very deliberate choices when they made Jesus their Lord. And I first wanted to start today to look a bit more at the history and the context of which we talk about that first century church today. You see, in Ephesus in uh, 62 AD, when the letter of Ephesians was written, there were both uh, Jews, mostly Gentiles, uh, living alike, going to work, walking down the streets, talking at the markets, side-by-side neighbors, just like you would have today. You know, if you were coming from a Jewish background at that time, you probably had some view of God. Uh, we've discussed in the past uh, the terms Yahweh and Elohim. Uh, but God as being a supreme maker, uh, they would have had some uh, type of view of that uh, growing up in a Jewish uh, home. But if you were not Jewish, you would probably be coming from a whole different viewpoint on what God is, who he is, does he exist. But either way, I want to think about some of the stories uh, that if you were growing up in a home then, that you may have heard from your parents or your aunts and uncles or other people uh, that you would have told about. Perhaps uh, you know, in Ephesus in the year 62 AD, you would have heard stories about Oceanus, the Greek god of the rivers in Ephesus. And there was a, a Oceanus, a statue uh, that was there in, uh, in Ephesus. Or maybe you heard about the uh, goddess Nike, the winged angel of victory as she was called. What did they see when they walked down the streets every day from store to store, from house to house? Well, they might have walked under the Hercules Gate that led into the downtown Ephesus area, or perhaps walked past the marble bust of the Roman Emperor Tiberius. Perhaps they would have seen the god Hermes carved into the side of a stone. He was the, known as the son of Zeus. Or they might have even seen uh, a statue of Zeus himself. In their pockets, a few coins made of, of a mint that was there in Ephesus at the time. And imprinted on the coin, well, it would have been the face of the Roman emperor Claudius. All this they might have passed or talked about or heard stories about and many more items like these, all on their way to maybe the Temple of Artemis that stood on the hillside. The Temple of Artemis is a monstrous temple with even a bigger foundation. All in all, this building was a football field and a half wide and a football field and a half long. It was very, very large and intimidating uh, at the time. The columns, 127 of them, stood 60 feet tall as this building loomed over the city of Ephesus. Inside this great temple, you would have found the goddess Artemis. Uh, of course, if you were in Rome, she would have been called Diana. But either way, it was the goddess of fertility, uh, also known as the daughter of Zeus. 
Ephesus would become known as the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which had fallen from heaven. Today, the temple is known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was an intimidating sight and had heavy influence into the culture of Ephesus. It was just the beginning. Walking through the city, you would have seen more sculptures, more gods, and other temples around the city, where the typical Ephesian uh, would believe in some variation of an afterlife, uh, where you could earn your way to a better afterlife by living a good life here. You see, in their minds, for the most part, only the really, really, really bad person would land in a place called Hades. And at the other end of the spectrum, only very, very few live such incredible lives that they would actually become a god. An example of that would have been Alexander the Great at the time. But for most people, the way you lived here, you could earn better afterlife by doing good works. The more good works you did, the better your afterlife was. So with that as a background and thinking about what it might have been like to walk the marble streets, to see the columns from uh, building to building to building, to see the sculptures, the, the gods, the, um, was all very much a part of the culture of everyday life there in Ephesus. So with that as a background, listen closely as I start today reading in Ephesians chapter 1 out of the NET version of the Bible. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. And we're going to see a bigger picture of what Paul is trying to help the church there with at the time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you can know what the hope, what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious uh, inheritance of the saints, and what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe, as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength. This power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. Now the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Stepping back for a moment, what is the big concept that Paul is doing here for the church in Ephesus? The people that walked around and saw all these impressive buildings, the impressive uh, uh, sculptures of gods and emperors, the emperor that's on their coins. What is God doing in that context? He is totally lifting up Jesus to above what the people could see. In verse 17 of what I just read, Paul writes that Jesus is Lord. In verse 18, he talks about the wealth of his glorious inheritance. In verse 19, says that he has incomparable greatness of his power. In verse 20, it says he is seated at the right hand in the heavenly helms. In verse 21, he says he is far above every rule and authority and power and dominion for all time. In verse 22, he says that all things are under his feet. And in verse 23, he says that the church, that the people is the body and that Christ 
is the head. Paul totally writes about God, uh, about Jesus, being this incredible person and putting him above all of the false gods and the emperors that they could see. And not just for then, but for all time. Paul is offering this clarity, which is countercultural to what is popular in Ephesus at the time. You see, they needed to remember the place of Jesus in the face of man-made gods. And thus Paul's prayer for them that I just read in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, this is all interesting context, but we need to look in the mirrors here for ourselves. It's a good head knowledge, but what is the application for us of what looking at the first century church and what they may have been tempted with and what are we tempted with today? Now, if you're listening to this, you may or may not and probably don't have carved gods sitting in your dresser drawer. You may not have a stone statue in your front yard that you bow down to and worship every Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. But you do have things that take you away from seeing Jesus. They keep you from growing and impacting the community and building incredible relationships, all things that we've learned so far in the past few podcasts of the Ephesian church. When you look at yourself and look at the time that you spend during a, a typical week, how much time do you spend gaming? How much time do you spend watching TV? Or how much time do you waste on your phone? How many days in the last week or the last month have you skipped of just spending time with God, either in prayer or in contemplating God's word? Who has learned about Jesus from you? These are all things to consider and maybe sometimes some hard questions to think about. But we do spend our time doing something. And are we edifying our relationship with God enough in the face of the temples and the gods and the temptations that, that we face day to day, week to week? This isn't about shaming. I'm not here to shame you of what you may or may not be doing, but it is a check for you and the idols in your life that squish the life out of your relationship with God. And we have to be able to talk about these things in the light and be able to talk truthfully and plainly, or how can we identify and know? It's very similar to receiving a test back when uh, you maybe were in school. The teacher would mark which questions were wrong so that you know what you didn't learn all right or what you missed and so that you could learn better for maybe the final test later on. But you would know which ones you missed. You would know where you would need to improve. Imagine just getting a test back and it just had C- minus on it with nothing marked on it. You see, we have to talk about the details in our lives of the things that are taking us away from our relationship with God the things that are squishing us away from that. In the same way as I talk today, as you listen to this, or as you contemplate Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read 2 here in a minute, let God illuminate these for you. And through growth, through change, repentance, bring Jesus back to the top. Put him above all things, and in that there is no shame for sure. But at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 that I just read, without a doubt, Paul is putting Jesus on a pedestal. But let's listen to 
Ephesians chapter 2 as I begin to read there, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He writes, And although you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us have formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and a mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he has loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And he raised us up together with him, and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is about having humility. You know, he starts out and right in verse 1, speaking very plainly and truthfully so we can see that you were dead in your sins. He goes on to talk about yeah, you lived according to the world and the evil desires, craving, uh, living according to the cravings and the desires of the flesh and the mind. Well, I think in my research, this is actually a lot about the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis, again, was the fertility goddess. Inside the temple, uh, there was really bad stuff uh, that went on in there where cravings and desires of the flesh were met. And this trickled throughout the city. So when he is speaking about this, he's speaking directly to the hearts of the people at the time. He was talking directly to the hearts of the people. But I know when I read that for myself, I think about another time in my life too where I was just living according to the cravings and desires of my flesh and mind as well. Many years ago, before I had chosen uh, to follow Jesus and to make Jesus my Lord, I had been invited many times to a, uh, a church event, a Bible discussion group event when I was in college, a, some type of religious event, and I never went to them. Uh, I never wanted to be a part of them and wasn't, wasn't interested at the time because, again, I was more about living about the cravings of, of my flesh. And finally, I remember a very uh, sunny uh, afternoon. I was sitting on a bench uh, reading a book, and a young lady came to invite me to a Bible group of some sort. I don't remember exactly what she uh, invited me to. But I looked at her with a, a scowl and with a horrible heart, and I said, get out of my face. Exactly, verbatim. I remember it very vividly, and it was 30-some-odd years ago. She was in shock, and she said, oh, my goodness, and she just kept on walking, and she today might remember it herself. I have no uh, clue as to what her name was or where she uh, would go from there, but she was being very friendly, and I was all about me. If you're listening to this, you have probably had similar stories, maybe in the past or maybe even just this week, where you are living all about you. And I think we should take Paul's words to heart when he says that we were dead in our sins. The Ephesians were dead and we were dead in our sins. 
I don't care how righteous or unrighteous you were before making Jesus your Lord, or maybe you haven't made that choice. But you and I can't forget about being dead. And later Paul writing about God being rich in mercy. You and I, we should be humble enough to own that. We are nothing without Jesus. We are nothing without him. And only through him can we be raised with that same power that I read in Ephesians chapter 1 to a new life that can only be done through Jesus, which is all about humility. We can't earn our way. He continues in verse 8. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we can do him. The Ephesians really thought that they could have a better afterlife by doing more good things in their earthly life. Do good things, earn better afterlife. Do another good thing tomorrow and have a better afterlife. And Paul is rewriting the book. He's like, no, 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 no. This thinking has to be undone. He totally reorders the good work part in what I just read. We are not saved by work, but saved to do good work for him. Again, totally countercultural for the Ephesians at the time. We are not saved by doing work, but we are saved to do good work for him. That is very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You see, when we take this humble road, we understand better that we are in service for Jesus. That we are in service for him, and that shows in the good works that we do at home, in our congregation, or at work, in the community, at school, there is no limit. And a good work is not in a box that I would tell you what it is. In other words, it's unique to you. I love the verse, uh, verse 10, where it says very clearly that we are his creative work. You know, if I sit in a group of 100 people, it's 100 different people that all have different gifts that all bring uh, different things to the table. They are unique to you. But what is important is that you bring those gifts that God has given to you to the table. So when you think in terms of that, how are you fulfilling his good work that God has prepared for you? Where do you see the opportunities for self or what limits might you be putting on the work that you might do? Only working when it's convenient only doing good work that's easy to do, only giving so much of yourself. While your gifts are unique to you, it's important that we, one, bring all of them to the table that God is giving us opportunity for. But it also doesn't give us a license to do what we want or to define it as we see fit. It's important in the context of Ephesians 2 to do good work. But it starts with in humility, and my second thought today is being brought together. In humility, brought together. 
brought together. You know, Paul continues and seems to direct this second part of Ephesians chapter 2 directly to the Gentiles in the group. And if you're listening to the podcast, the uh, Jews were uh, one group, and then the Gentiles is essentially everyone else, everyone else that is not a Jew. But let's see what Paul says, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by the human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of the commandments and the decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, so that through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We all know it's difficult to bring two extremely different groups to have them come together and try to be unified. You know, it's one thing to have two groups sit in the same room together. It's another thing to have them at least to be uh, friendly with each other, but yet another thing to consider them truly unified. You know, you can't talk about a husband and wife and uh, our friendship with you and another person, boys and girls, politics, or even arch rivals at a sporting event. Being unified is difficult. It needs humility. It needs uh, seeing the other side. It may require a changing views and usually involves a unifying thought. And that's where Paul brings Jesus into the picture once again. In verse 15 and 16, what I just read, you know, it teaches us that Jesus himself, through his actions on the cross and the sacrifice he made there, he was able to make one man out of two. In other words, bring together unified one group out of two groups, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles. And that he also, within the group, brings peace. You know, as followers of, of Jesus, when you think about our marriages, if you happen to be uh, married, in the spirit of this purpose being created to do good works for him that I talked about previously, yet we should be able to complement each other on that. In our marriages, we should be able to pick each other up when one falls down in this area. That's why it's so important when you're thinking about choosing a spouse. An overriding question should be, does he or she compliment me in the service of doing good works for him? Because that is why God has put us here. You see, it's a problem when we just let each other slip. I mean, everybody slips and we lose sight and it all falls down. And we're not picking each other up 
sometimes our marriages get into that spot. Our marriages get into a spot where, you know what, it's just easier to let it go. It's just easier to not give good works for him. In our marriages, we should be looking at them. Is that are we working together to do good works for him? But not just on our marriages, and it doesn't certainly apply to only marriages, but in ministry groups. It's hugely important for us, this reason, being an active part and filling our role in ministry groups of being active part of them because you have gifts to bring to the table and somebody else needs them. But not just even in our ministry groups, as, as a church, as a full church, it's the same thing. We are here to help each other to fill our roles of doing God's work, of coming together, being brought together to do God's works. I think the Gentile followers of Jesus were maybe struggling with that. Or maybe uh, we're insecure about that. Maybe working hard and difficult to try to overcome past thoughts of, of the gods and so forth that they may have uh, had there. Or maybe it's just past thoughts or past hurts or past way of thinking. But Paul is clearly picking them up, reassuring them that they are now fellow citizens. They're not on the outside looking in. They're not half unified. They are not just have one foot in the same room. They're just not sitting in the same room. They are part of the team. They are fully unified in Christ Jesus. They were brought together and truly with the other disciples through Jesus the Son of God. He's convincing them that they were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet with Jesus as their cornerstone. Again, I think this is a reference to the temple of Artemis. They totally knew what a foundation was. And when you looked up at this monstrous temple, it had a humongous foundation. And questions may have arisen at one point in discussions of who is Jesus and where is his temple? Where, is, where do I go to worship him? They are being built not on a foundation of marble and stone, but in fact a foundation based on the apostle and the prophets with Jesus as their cornerstone. Our equivalent is God's word. We find the apostles in the New Testament. We find prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, is at the center of God's word. And they totally knew what a foundation was. And they totally knew what a building was. The temple of Artemis was the biggest in the city. And was uh, totally made by artisans carving rocks to make columns. Carving rocks to make facades. Piece by piece being built. And so they knew exactly what Paul is trying to convince them of. Paul, again was redefining it for them. There was, in fact, no temple of Jesus made of stone. They themselves were being built into a holy temple, turning any previous thoughts uh, totally upside down of what their purpose was and who they were as followers of Jesus. Being unified means holding each other arms up, 
It means seeing and understanding each other. It means living a, a righteous life of good works. It means loving when it's fun and easy and when it's hard and you don't quite understand. Being unified takes a lot of effort, but it's worth it and extremely powerful. We can't let each other down. In humility, being brought together. You see, Paul wrote to them, and it's the same for us, that we are, in fact, in Ephesians 2, verse 22, being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That we are being brought together for him so that we can be built into a dwelling place for the creator of the universe, for our God and Father. You are important. You matter. I matter. We work together. What you and I say and do counts. As we are being masterfully created and growing in God, being built together, brought together, being built into a holy temple. In humility, being brought together to do good works. In humility, being brought together to be a dwelling place. In humility, being brought together for him. I want to encourage you to go ahead and read, read chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then perhaps maybe something we could work on and you could work on is to practice hospitality. What are your steps for that? Maybe you just need to clean your house to have someone over. Maybe you just need to pick a time and have someone over for coffee, for tea, for dinner, for whatever it might be. Maybe it's just to invite somebody into your home to play a game. But invite someone from the church or out of the church into your life. And let's work together to become that dwelling place for God. I hope that was helpful. And if you liked it, would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're in the Charlottesville, Virginia area and would like to stop in and visit us at a Sunday service, please send us a note or visit us at our website at blueridgedisciples.org for more information.